Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host, and having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Janine Deval. Janine is from South Africa and she's an architect there. She has a company called JDW Architects. However, there is a little story that we're going to just tell you about that because that's going to change as well. Janine, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Adrian. Great to have you here. Um, you've got a list of accolades that is long. People can go to your website to find those. Um, and that's the point I want to make about the website thing, because we were just uh, chatting before we started recording and uh, with the website is it's about to change. So, you know, the worst time in the world to do marketing, um, the, <laughs> the worst time in the world to talk to people. Um, is yeah, is right there ever this, a good time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right on this point. So do I Google this one or do I Google that one? What we will do is in the show notes at the end, we will put, what it is for now and the future um, and uh, we'll we'll pick up with another conversation in the future once you've changed the name as well because while well, we'll touch on some things about why you're changing the name um, yes we won't go into it in depth so it will just become janineduval.com correct yeah there you go that's what it will become and um, yes We'll touch on some of that and that you'll see why, because it's about being the artist and the architect, not just the um, architect. Totally. So Africa, I spent some time in Africa <laughs> many years ago. As one does. As one does, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have a coffee plantation, though. And um, <laughs> Yes, that's luckily not so much in the south. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's a, it's a place, an absolutely incredible country and continent as well. You know, so I say country, continent, it's an amazing Yes, continent. Africa is not a country. No, no, it isn't. It's multiples <laughs> of countries and, and right from sort of the top end, you know, up in the Mediterranean end of it and right down to the tip of it. I was um, lucky enough to spend a few years in South Africa and uh, many years ago and it was a cultural shock and a cultural highlight in my life and I still have friends there from that those times you know like amazingly um, one of the girls and a guy that we lived with uh, their kids just represented South Africa in the Olympics so wow pretty cool. that's great pretty cool yeah really amazing um, anyway it almost sounds like what you were saying, like a cultural shock and a cultural highlight is was um, when I moved to Namibia just after finishing my studies, yep. I cried. And they said you only cried twice when moving to Namibia. When once when you arrive <laughs> and once when you leave. <laughs> pretty much similar. Yep. And that's just neighboring country. And that already had that effect. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I want to talk about Namibia as well. So let's just do a quick, like, um, run us through from you were this kid. And at some point, with all the creativity you have, which is plenty, 
Um, and, you know, you, you let that manifest into lots of different ways with being a sculptor and an artist and as well as an architect. Um, at some point, architecture won you over out of whatever it could be or you fell into it and didn't know how to climb out of it. One or the other. What was the journey? Tell <laughs> the us latter. a little bit about that. <laughs> Definitely the latter. Yeah, so, I mean, um, uh, I've got an older sister and my dad was always working in the garage. We've never been able to park a car in our garage. It's always been a wood shop and a woodworking and steel and whatever, whatever. And then, you know, when you go to school, you have to do the girls don't do needlework and the boys do woodwork. And my dad was like a really, really keen woodworker. So when my sister hated the needlework teacher. And then when I got to like the age of 10, my dad said like, don't you maybe rather want to do like woodwork? I was like, oh yeah, why not? Because the woodwork, ugh, the needlework teacher is terrible. Let's do the woodwork. I know the woodwork teacher, he's great. So I was like the first girl ever in our primary school to do woodwork. And then subsequently two other girls did it. And I just loved it. And I won the woodwork prize every year. And then um, <laughs> going to high school, I just continued doing woodwork or like being the only girl in the class. But again, I won all the woodwork prizes. And then my mom's an art teacher. So we've always grown up drawing and, you know, like it's just always been part of life, drawing and creating. And then, um, I mean, so I took art as a subject. I mean, the big thing for me when I turned um, 14, you had to do your final choices. And I couldn't take art, maths and woodwork together because the school wouldn't facilitate that choice. And I was devastated and annoyed and upset at all of that. So that was like really kind of quite heart-wrenching for me. And art and maths won. Um, but I think because we had done technical drawing and, yeah. I mean, I still won the Woodward Prize and whatever. It's kind of still stuck in there. And then when I got him a trick, the art teacher said, oh, you would be, like, she went around the class saying, like, you would be a good fine artist. You would be a good graphic designer. You would be a good architect. Because the guidance counselor just said, oh, you've got a good ability to see 3D, but he couldn't really tell me what and to do. And my uncle actually trained as an architect. And he said to me, Janine, don't study architecture. Whatever you do, don't do it. And I was like, what is he talking about? And then years later, I heard my cousin also wanted to be an architect. And my uncle refused point blank. And she then became a quantity surveyor. <laughs> you know, and she still regretting her choices anyway so that was a I kind of then just thought okay well the art teacher knows best went off registered started studying first year was great second year was terrible I hated it and I thought because we'd always gone and visited my cousins on the farm every June holiday I'm going to apply to go and study farming but I knew I had to finish my degree because you know like I can't stop midway and then end up with nothing and then luckily we got assigned to um, to document an architect's house and we just so happened to get like the best architect designed house in South Africa, Harvey Fagan's house. And I kind of didn't really know it at the time. And I mean, they're just such lovely people. They were already elderly and they invited us. You arrive in Camps Bay. It's like one of the most amazing suburbs in Cape Town west facing into the sunset which is also like a really harsh aspect but the view is west facing and you're not going to turn your back on <laughs> on the view that's for sure 
and you arrive on the street level and you actually go down into like a little flight of steps that goes narrower and narrower and narrower until you get to the front door. Now you're already like sunken. You haven't got a view of anything. You arrived at the road. You had a view of the ocean. Now you've got everything's got taken away. They open the door. You carry on down this little corridor, which then widens into these most amazing framed views of the ocean. And it takes your breath away. And then eventually, once you've been to the public spaces, you go up this suspended staircase. And as I went up the staircase, there's this undulating timber ceiling. And I just got butterflies in my stomach. And I just knew, how can you be anything else but an architect? And that was the turning point. And then I was lost, you know? So like farming was like a distant memory. And yeah, Harvey just like turned around, everything around just like that. And was he there when you were at, in the house? Yeah. At that moment when I went up the stairs and saw that ceiling, it's because it's, um, it's almost like, um, you know, Gaudi Park well, they've got that one little structure and it's convex on the one side and it narrows down. So it's got this undulating, it's not a barrel vault. I don't know whether there is a specific technical term for it. Right. Um, but the ceiling was just, and I, I mean, I'd never had butterflies going into yeah. the space ever in my entire life, you know? Um, and, and now, I, and now I you spend your, Yeah, now you spend your life um, seeking out butterfly moments. Totally. Um, because, and trying to give them to others as well, trying to create yes. them for others. That's the, yes. you know, so often in, in this business, um, the budget, you know, takes the ceiling away. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't, it <laughs> flattens it, it flattens it and lowers it. And uh, yes. there you go. Oh, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yes. But the phenomenal thing is that Harvey Fagan built that house with his family. So they literally like mixed the concrete, poured the concrete, had, and the kids were like all like like teenagers and younger, and they were like fixing Labors. the rebar on the roof. Can I say? And then they actually lived in the house before it had windows and doors, and they had to like with the southeaster tie down their bedding, otherwise it would fly out the window because there was no window, you know. Wow. So they kind of really camped in the house. So I think that's also why you can have these like really phenomenal experiences because it's just been handcrafted by the genius you know yeah. so it's like yeah. just so much more elevated than trying to transcribe and translate it into a set of drawings which somebody else then has to make and do um, and whatever i think that thing when it's um you know when i've been to quite a few homes that were where the architect has built them yes. and for themselves for themselves yes. not for somebody else yes. and they are in whether they've you know had building teams there or whatever, but they are in every no. they're in every piece of the structure. They're in yes. the and and there's a sense of sometimes it, 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 it's weird because sometimes you actually have to kind of go to their headspace to understand you or you almost need to understand them to then understand the house. But when yes. you when you get that blend and you can yeah. do that, you go, oh yes. Yeah. Now it makes sense. Now it makes sense why um, 
not necessarily something that was unexplained, but why there's genius no. in it as opposed to, um, you know, sort of just mundane in it. Now, I often think when you're drawing a house, you know, you're trying to be in the headspace of the um, people who are going to live in it. That's where you're trying to be. And yeah. then embody their space. It's sort of a... I often think if you know actors, how actors, you know, become the character. Yeah, it's role playing. Yeah. yeah. And so you're you're trying to get to know them well enough to be able to role play the the journey for them yeah. ahead of them ever having the journey. And yeah. um it it's a it's a fascinating thing, and that's why it's so important that the um the clients that you choose as a as an architect or as a designer. The clients that you choose to work with, you've got to have that um, empathetic, totally. empathetic connection. Yeah, that you can actually live in their shoes while you're drawing. Yeah, mm. yes. Mm. Yeah, it's because I think like um, Richard Laplastia's house as well. I don't know if you've been there. No, I mean that like that to me is also just like it's. I mean, like, like when we went there with a the Glen Merkin Masters class in 2008, um, like my the one friend from Tassie, he was saying it's like a formalized campsite. Yeah. You know, but it's just like it's the essence of what you need. Like, you know, there's no excess. There, and I mean, like, that's just such an, an like beautiful, you know, the architect designing and building and being yep. in the mind of it's just yeah, really yeah, it, incredible. It, it, it's not a monument. It's a way of life. Yeah, it's not a monument. It's a way of life. Totally. And and that's what's so cool about it. I, with with your um, upbringing and making that well that that moment when you and you can remember it so clearly. This is what it's going to be. I think that's really brilliant. And then following that, and then as you say, like those butterfly kind of moments, trying to find them um, around the world or wherever you can go, or create, and then and yeah. then also create them also create yeah. those for other people. Um, mm. And, I mean, it's one thing to create it for somebody you know. It's a whole other thing to create it for people you've never met that uh, yeah. they get to experience it. One of the beautiful things about um, architecture is, is that you actually get to experience it, like, in 3D in its whole space and everything yes. else, whereas, you know, a great photograph you get to experience in 2D or a great painting yeah. you get to experience in. Yeah, it's those, the senses, you know, yeah. so you really have to engage all your senses. It's smell, it's your skin feeling the heat or the cold, it's hearing, it's the eyes. I mean, it's, and sometimes even, like, the taste, you know, like, almost like tasting the rain, you know. Yes. Um, and I think that's kind of like even a video, like a video is obviously better than a photograph, but mm -hmm. there's nothing that beats the in-person experience of space. Mm. No, there isn't. Um, I, you said something there that I'm going to ask you about now. Um, that was tasting the rain. And, you know, one of the things, having you've traveled a lot, I've traveled a lot, um, is tasting water in different countries. And yes. yeah, often it's <laughs> municipal water and it tastes like shit. Uh, yes. And that's because it was it wasn't long ago sewage, you know, like it's it, it's been on a journey. Um, yes. but tasting the rain is a really interesting thing that I bet you most people have never really considered. Um, well, because we, we're trying to avoid the rain. As opposed yes. to, you know, like, see, 
but I know the different flavors of rain from different parts of the world I've been in. I remember being caught in Montana up in the Bitterroot Mountains and there was a, you know, like a thunderstorm and it was a, a, not even super heavy, but it rained. Yeah. Um, and we were out um, fly fishing, but it was enough yes. that, that the rain was trickling down my face and oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and it went in my mouth and I'm like oh yeah and it had it had this different earthiness to my other yeah. experiences which were you know and I I can do exactly the same with my time in South Africa exactly yeah. the same I always think yeah. this it, it's a it's a sense that you would never get the other morning I, I got up and did some training with um you know like physical training with a group of guys that I'm doing and that the, the, I've got sort of an eight-week challenge and the first morning we did it I live where there's only um there's 330 sunshine days a year so there's only 36 <laughs> rain days only shame yeah. shame <laughs> yeah exactly um it poured with rain the whole time yeah we were doing it and um, yeah again that taste of the rain and I'm a surfer so also like if I'm in the water I don't mind surfing in the rain but the taste yeah. of the rain is a really I think yeah. it's just it, it shifts you from what you thought you knew to what you it's an experience yeah and I think like I've I've got a, a quite a good or diverse contemporary art collection mostly South African art and I've got these two little sculptures of a little boy and a little girl sticking their tongues out so rack. you would imagine they are like quite like, you know, a little bit nasty towards each other. And then you read the title and the title is Rain Tasters. So it's like just the most amazing little piece of artwork. Um, and then while I was living in Namibia, I mean, Namibia, the rain is quite an amazing thing. It's, it's in the um, summer season, cloudbursts, thunderstorms, and it, it builds up, you know, and we always laugh. Sort of like this is the only, yes, exactly. Yeah. But um, and then they have they have all these dry river beds in Vintuk, which is the capital, and then like they have flash uh, flash floods, you know, when it's like really heavy downpours, and I mean where vehicles get swept away and stuff. And we always laugh that we think Namibia is probably the only country when when it starts raining, everyone runs outside. Go and look at the rain. You know, yeah. nobody goes indoors. Everyone goes outdoors to go and check. Like, ah, oh, the amazing rain. Because also, the desert after its rain oh, is yeah. just the yeah. most phenomenal yeah. thing. You know, immediately um, and, while it's raining, immediately after, and yes. then the, and then the months to come. Yeah, because everything yeah. shifts. Everything shifts. Totally. You know, things grow. The different, like different species of animals and yes. stuff come out that yeah. you didn't know existed, you know, like, yeah, everything yes. shifts, everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and that's the power of, of rain and water, you know, it's just so phenomenal and it's just such a force, but it's just got so much um, kind of life, you know? A hundred percent. It brings life. It creates yeah. life. Yeah. It, it, so it brings true. and creates life. I love that. I love yeah. that. That was so cool to get that little like and you know like we'll, we'll keep weaving back to it as well um with those things so you know with the with that tasting the rain and getting these different experiences around the world i bet you not too many people until now when they listen to this in the audience will they'll probably go you know i'm going to stick my tongue out 
when I'm when I'm <laughs> in the when I'm out there, I'm going to stick my tongue yeah. out, and um, I think that that's a really cool thing because it, again, it's a different experience um, as yeah. to how you experience places. One of the things being in South Africa, and um, I've had a very limited experience there, but having a, quite a few South African friends here in Australia. Um, one of the things about it is, is is a country that has a certain amount of isolation and I often think of it's like Perth as a city and Australia has a certain amount of isolation yeah. and New Zealand where I was you know, brought up yeah. is again a country that's isolated so it creates um, a culture of self-sufficiency and self with the self-worth but self-reliance and totally. yeah I, and I, I think mm. that you know like obviously that shifts the kind of client that you have as well as it shifts the kind of opportunities that are there and, and so in that sort of isolation you also end up with innovation like lots of innovation and we were talking before we started recording just about how you know, it, it isn't settled yet. It doesn't have its path so clearly mapped as a place. And because of that, you can, that the, the, the road isn't as, as narrow. It's you, you're the one who creates the road. It's a path that isn't necessarily trodden yet. And um, I'd love to talk to you about how that, how that is, is, part of the, the, the DNA of your thinking and your behaviour, um, certainly being slightly a rebel as a woodworker and, you know, like in, in primary school <laughs> or junior school, but yeah, obviously no fear no yeah. to follow a path or to create a new one. Yeah, so that's kind of what I was going to say when you were saying like the road is quite wide. I think in, in many instances there aren't any roads. If you, You're lucky if they're two dirt tracks. You know, mm -hmm. that you can follow and then the shrubs grow over it. So, you know, you don't really know where it goes. So you kind of just create your own. Um, and I think kind of, you know, like South Africa, it's got a very much like a pioneering mentality and a very can do. And I mean, because we have many, many problems, we're very much solution orientated and and you kind of just have to carry on because, like, I mean, what's the alternative? You kind of tackle the problem, you solve or solve. I wouldn't say solve, but, um, you know, you go and add to kind of an, a result of going towards a solution in many mm -hmm. instances because I think it's kind of like arrogant to think that you could solve it, you know, but you can contribute. So I think, like, that's the thing, like, there's so many things that you can contribute to to improve people's lives, you know. So I think it's a constant wheel that keeps on turning. And I don't think it's necessary, like, there's a problem, there's a solution. It's there's the problem and this is how we improve around that problem. And we keep on improving and we keep on improving um, until we reach a level, which I don't think we have. Um, and I think what's really, really great about South Africa is that we are so diverse and that we really um, transparent, you know, so we're mm. kind of really open about where we are, what we're dealing with, um, you know, so I, I really like that. And I think kind of like 
being born in South Africa or Southern Africa, because I think, I mean, having lived in Namibia and yeah. going over yeah. that border, there's something spiritual that goes into your body and you could, can never get rid of it. And I, I always think like, it doesn't matter where I travel in the world. Like South Africa is in my blood. It's in my DNA. And like, I can live other places for like a couple of months or a couple of years, but you know, like your heartstrings just come back to the mountain. Um, and, and it's interesting and, and obviously traveling and working and living in other countries, one learns so many lessons that you then apply in different ways and different mindsets. So I think like, I mean, obviously traveling, it's in search and to experience amazing places and spaces and cultures, and then to bring that knowledge home and see yeah. how you then, um, yeah. apply it, it, you know, and how it distills yeah. and how it, it's not. It's not taking it from there and plugging it in here. It's yeah. taking it from there and distilling it through your filtering system of your environment and your people and your yeah. things and then being able to bring that back out um, and innovate yeah. with it. That's the, that's the joy. Yeah. Of, I had yeah. the, and with, with, you know, like a, a client base um, of, people with that do you have you well here's a question here's a better way of framing that have you only designed homes in or, or places in africa or have you designed them for in other countries as well so i've designed homes i mean obviously when i worked in Ventuk, um we designed a house there on the mountain it was like amazing and i've designed homes in south africa funny enough for quite a few foreigners so we've had like italians and french people um so it's it's interesting because one always gets um so many south africans that go like oh it's so much better overseas whatever whatever but then you end up with so many foreigners as clients and then and then i mean we had a italian woman who was in her 70s who couldn't really speak English. And she then went to school with like five, six-year-old boy, like boys and girls to learn English because she came on holiday to South Africa and knew that this was where she wanted to live for the rest of her life. I mean, from Italy. And uh, <laughs> so I've got such phenomenal stories of just like foreigners who come to South Africa fall in love with the people, the culture, the climate, and just go like, this is the most amazing place, you know, in comparison to whatever, you know. Um, so yeah, it's always, so those stories are always quite phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. You know, and obviously it's, it's very personal, you know, um, and, and I mean, I'm not saying like South Africa is better than Italy, not at all, you know, like, it's but it's just different. kind of that personal experience. Yes, totally. And what resonates with you at, like we were saying earlier, like timing, you know, timing in the end is so important. So if something is right in that time of your life, you know, it just, it just falls into place. Another place that I've built uh, or designed a house was in Zambia, in Lusaka, just outside Lusaka. And that was probably, I did that. Um, one just after attending the Glen Merkin Masters class. And that was probably like one of my like favorite, you know, when there's like a catalyst and like everything kind of falls into place and, 
and also the clients, um, I knew them from Namibia, so they kind of gave me free reign. And the climate in Zambia is fantastic. I mean, talk about yes. rain. Yes. In Cape Town, we have rain that comes horizontally with a northwest wind. So, I mean, it's really difficult. We have to waterproof the walls because that's where all the water comes in. You know, yes, it comes through the roof, but the walls are the big thing. But in Zambia, it's just like like dead straight. It's vertical rain, no wind-driven rain. So we had these beautiful covered passages. We had no like enclosed passages at all. We just had rooms and verandas and covered walkways. So it was just really an amazing experience in terms of climate, in terms of, and really used locally available materials, went to the local plumbing shop, got everything locally um, sourced, which was also really great in terms of the carbon footprint and so on. And then I've also um, been involved in a project in the Bahamas, um, which was also, I mean, again, I think experiencing the new culture, the new climate, one does all of that extra research. Um, and that's kind of why I really like working in remote locations, you know, because you really delve down into the culture, the climate, the work, the way people design, the way people build, and then also looking at vernacular and local building materials, you know, those are always so informative of what makes sensible design. Um, and I think as an outsider, when one goes into a foreign country, you're kind of almost a bit more alert than people yes. that have lived there because to them it's not necessarily special because they're used to it and it's the everyday, you know, so they don't kind of perceive it necessarily as the same like beginner's mindset. And I think like that's what I really, really enjoy is like having that beginner's mindset when you go to a new project, but even more so when it's in a foreign country and you really are the beginner in terms of the culture, the climate, the people, the building materials and really experiencing that. I mean, I remember uh, I mean, um, going with a builder to Potter's Key um, in Nassau in the Bahamas mm -hmm. and I mean it was just like and we went to go and uh, get a snack at some of the sh a shack there and it was just such an amazing experience we uh, like everyone said like you have to go and eat conch salad you have to go and eat conch salad and Potter's Key is the place to go and have conch salad because it's fresh off the boat and whatever whatever and just experiencing that I mean that was like really like a highlight you know from of working in the Bahamas and it was quite an exclusive thing working in um but really having like a basic understanding of the culture and then also i mean i always laugh <laughs> nasa is like zambia but just next to america because it's got the same like african like framework and pace and also climate you know so zambia is also quite tropical and the heat and and also kind of the rugged ruralness and the basic infrastructure i mean like i Black and also the colors and the people it's just like quite incredible you know just so a beautiful having kind scene. of those comparisons that you start drawing yes exactly um and you appreciate it and you go like oh that's like wherever you've been you know and like trying to well starting to make these little parallels you know so people are like oceans apart but there's still something that connects us deep down you know, yeah. on a soul level, yeah. um, which I think is quite extraordinary. We, I mean, part of the, the one guy, I think it was from Costa Rica, he all, 
he said, we're all on the rim of a bathtub and we just need to dip our toes into the ocean. And it's the same bathtub that we're dipping our toes into. It doesn't matter where on the rim of the bathtub you're dipping your toes in. I remember somebody saying to me years ago, there's one water and there's one air. Yeah. And we're all breathing totally. it. We're all breathing yeah. it and we're all drinking it or we're all living off it. There's only the one. Yeah. And so yeah. we need to, these are these are things that we need to A, protect, but also we need to remember that we're all doing the same things in Connected. the same ways. Yeah. 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 It, uh, and that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, and one of the things that we were talking about this earlier is the heightened sense of being connected um, when you're physically connected, when you're actually physically in the same space um, or in the space of a structure or anything like that. You know, we can do this with Zoom and we can we can be connected, but the actual when we're physically there. That connection. It's a poor point. substitute. You yeah. know, everything else than physical connection is a poor substitute. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, this is something that you know, go back to where I started this piece with the, you know, isolation or being um innovative and you know, you can do it with a a whole culture. You know, we we can we can take yeah. a country and we can isolate them. We can take a town and isolate them. Yes. And you know, local well yeah. The last couple of years with COVID, we've taken people and families and isolated them yes. um, in isolated states and cities and things like this, you know. And mm. I think people's um, need for others uh, has probably been, and, and, you know, for many years, it will change the landscape of our lives. And it will change yeah. it certainly for our kids and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, what this, you know, minute little period of isolation that we've gone through, uh, it will do for people. Mm. And, you know, you put it in the terms of, yeah. of millennia and it's nothing. Um, it's, you know, it's not, even yeah. a, it's not even a blink. It's not even the thought of a blink. It's so small. But then you yeah. put it in the terms of, say, a 20-year-old. And, yeah. it's, and it's um and two years is like you know 10 yeah, of, a lifetime 10 of their life <laughs> or 10 percent yes and, and go, especially if they supposed to go to university and their first two years <laughs> of university has been like via facebook yeah i really do feel that the connection to nature is almost like more primal than connection to each other and i yes. think that i mean people have really really struggled are people that have been in the houses with people that they don't necessarily like that they're not harmonious relationship. But I think people, yes, I mean, so like that, you and I might be stuck on your own. Be, yeah, that might be most yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um, the people who have had access to nature, it hasn't been that tough for them as people who have not had access to nature because I yeah. think. This period has also really highlighted how important nature is to each and every one of us, whether we like gardening or whether we like walking or whatever, whatever. It's kind of, it's, it's beyond like a hobby or, or anything else. It's like kind of like that primal need that deep down 
we we need to be connected to nature to survive. You know, I think this is something that's so 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 prevalent with it that if you look at you know we'll we'll blame architects for it because um, that, <laughs> yeah. I, I actually think that they are the culprit. Um, but we we first of all you know we 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 sought shelter. Um, and that was yes. from the elements, and then we sh- sought protection, and that was from the uh, other predators, you know, yeah. us, us not being at the top of the food chain. If we were at the top of the food <laughs> yes. chain, who cares? We'd just eat all that <laughs> shit that's out there. You yeah, know, we'd, yeah. we'd take care of everything. So yeah. we, we, are, we are physically nowhere near the top of the food chain when it comes to predators. No. Well, not in South Africa, at least, not with the elephants and the great whites. Yeah, hell no, <laughs> yeah. Five. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Um, so that then we, so that's what we sought, and then um, we, to a large degree, I think, as humans, tended to put barriers between us and the outside, and yes. that was fine when we could go outside. You know, yeah. that, that was fine. Um, yeah. But we we we've built more and more barriers, and then we have tried to um, create another internal world. It's like creating a virtual yes. world, you know. We've tried to create yeah. this other internal world that meets mm. all our needs, and yeah. yet probably more than fifty percent of our needs is met outside of the door of whatever we've built or created, and so. Totally. I think, yeah, I, I think that we've, we're going to see, well, hopefully we're going to see, I think we are seeing it. I think there's a global trend towards it pre-COVID as well as I think COVID um, will just speed it up, is this totally blurred line between yeah. the indoors and the outdoors and yeah. the ability to climatically manage sections of what we require Rather than yes. just trying to climatically manage everything, you know, we yeah. can't. We can't do that. And with global yeah. warming, we're going to experience more severity. And we can treat it one of two ways: one with very mm. old-fashioned, um, fear-driven architecture, you know, or fear-driven people, but architecture coming out of that, which will be to build bunkers. Well, keeping everything out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and yes. then. And people have suddenly realised that, that they imprison themselves by keeping everything out. Yeah. You, put, you build yourself a prison. And yes. So, yeah, the conscious kind of style of shift in architecture is, is to get let everything in but still give you those protected points. I had a snake yeah. in the house the other day. I had a python. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, I had a yeah. mole snake on my lawn, like, and I never, like, I was like half a meter from it and it started hissing at me as I was leaving my house to get to my car. And I got the shock of my life, you know, but at least it wasn't a python. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I had a three meter python. The wilderness wants to get in, that's for sure. <laughs> uh. Yes. I had a three-meter python turn up in my living room. Uh, I'm renovating at the moment, and there was a gap between the underhouse and the upper house that was only there for, open for a couple of days. Well, it was only a couple. Yeah. Of, it would have been open for a week if it hadn't been for the fact that the python crawled up into <laughs> it. Um, 
And that was a very real, um, yeah, I like nature, but I don't necessarily want all of it inside my home. <laughs> well, it reminds me, um, when I went to Sri Lanka to go and look at Jeffrey Bauer's Kandalama Hotel, I was 21 years old, and he just designed the most phenomenal kilometer-long hotel, three levels, permanently full, and you never actually knew you were in a hotel that was fully booked. And it was open walkways and overgrown verandas and all of that. And the monkeys used to climb all over the place because it was almost just like an extension of the, of the rock face. So it's built against the rock face. So it almost just created like another layer. Um, and they always had all these warnings like keep the balcony doors closed when you like leave your room and whatever. But that's also like it was an excellent example of just like the rooms were air conditioned, but nothing beyond that, you know. So as soon as you left your room, it was open corridors and many of the kind of public spaces were, were open and they had like lovely seating areas. And it was just, you know, exposed to nature. And they also have the monsoon, you know, yes. which is also yes. quite severe in terms of rain. Um, but it was just such an amazing kind of place and sense of space. Um, yeah, I think, and I mean, um, Jeffrey Bauer is known for his critical regionalism. And then you just really see he understands the climate, he understands the culture, he understands the tectonics and the materials. And it's just when everything comes together, it's just really phenomenal. You know, there's no other word for it. That's genius. Yeah. Uh, and that's why. <laughs> okay, that's, there is another word for it. <laughs> yeah, that's the word. That's the word. That's genius. Yes. But to also a phenomenal be, genius. Yeah, to just be um, that in the moment, that in touch, that in, in that much of your own space, um, and confident to be at one with it, whilst you're creating something that is potentially going to destroy it. Yeah, you know, like like because that, it's um, a fine line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had an interesting conversation um, last year with uh, Jamie Jury, who's a horticulturalist and then also runs a company that they have quite a few architects and they design massive resorts around the world and very big. He, he yeah. designs all his resorts from the point of horticulture. Yes. So not from the point of um the building, building. the the building yeah. the building matters but the building is to support the horticulture yeah. whether that be up in the air with it or whatever else um yes and how do you use planting and that was a really I, I loved having the chat with them in the sense that it really took instead of designing the place from the point of view of the humans design it from the point of view of nature and then when yes. you design it from the point of view of nature, humans fit with it and you make them fit harmoniously into both spaces. Whereas yeah. too often we don't break the mold. We don't look from the, the other perspective. We don't, we yes. don't force the thinking. Yeah, and I think, yeah. But I think for me, because, I mean, I followed Jeffrey so long, you know, so for me that inside, outside needs to be blurred. You know, you need to, in every single room, basically yep. be connected to nature. 
you know, so it's it's so important where you can kind of have like glass that goes down into the floor finish mm-hmm. and there's actually even no frame, you mm-hmm. know, and just kind of have those blurred lines because, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you can live without having that connection to nature, you know, I think. So, yeah, so it's really important to have like that connection between inside and outside and where you have views from every room into nature and where you can't, where you start using things like glass that's frameless that goes down into the floor finish and where you can't actively or consciously perceive the inside outside. Um, I think that's just really, really important to be connected. And I think people who aren't connected like that, they, they start having unhealthy kind of ways of living and I think it's on a very subconscious level it's not necessarily on a conscious level because I've also been dappling into it with feng shui a little bit and it's kind of created like another level of awareness as a designer so that's really starting looking at kind of how these spaces really affect us on a subconscious level so in Zambia I had the client who said we had like a floating um, wall behind his bed and he was like, no, 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 we can't have a floating wall. We have to close it on one side. And I was like, that's a bit strange. And now I realize it's that prospect and refuge. So he was not feeling comfortable having a floating wall where people could come from either side and attack him, you know, he couldn't articulate it as such. But that anxiety in his subconscious that a floating wall behind his bed spaces really affect us and crazes you know that in many people it creates anxiety and what's interesting is dogs if it creates anxiety in dogs you know it creates anxiety in humans but we are just better at adapting to it so for me i've been and cats are like the other extremes cats like thrive on things that are bad and that dogs are scared of Yes. And so I kind of like look at things where don't like going upstairs with no risers, you know. So if a dog doesn't like it, it actually just become like a lot more aware of what are the aspects that are actually creating anxiety in our spaces on a subconscious level, you know, and and that we can that that we kind of deal with. And I think also elderly people. It affects them and they're much more kind of vocal about it. Where, yes, it affects us, but can kind of adapt. And yes. so, yes. look at older people and dogs. What they struggle with is what we all struggle with on a subconscious level. Unless you're like a manic mountain near or whatever, whatever, you know, and like you full feeding and stuff, which I mean, it's a small part, part of the population. Um, yeah, so I think kind of as designers, there's also a measure of arrogance that we think we kind of know it all. And I think that's kind of what the Feng Shui has really brought home is that, yes, we educate, we know a lot, but we're not really educated in the psychology of how spaces affect people. And I kind of, that's like, like a whole new layer that's now being filtered in, you know, and that kind of one has to, as a good designer, take note because who doesn't want to design supportive spaces, but supporting your physical body, like shelter, like we said, and Mm -hmm. protection, and also like the mind and the soul, you know, because if your home is not the place where you come to be welcome and safe and secure, then where do you go? So for me, like kind of, yes, we started off designing houses, 
and now we're all creating homes, but we should actually be creating havens. So you should actually be on holiday in your haven every single day, as opposed to going on a holiday once a year or twice a year. <laughs> you know? One of the things that that brings up so um, beautifully is this this ability to uh, to to sort of like dig into what creates joy or comfort or um, a sense of security, um, yes. you know, low risk with a, yeah. a, and. For, for humans, for humans and yes. in the built space. And, you know, as you said, like, it's one thing, you know, to make something that's maybe sustainable for the planet and that that's yes. important. And then it's it sustainable is. for the piece of environment that it's directly in at the same time. Um, yes. And then that's that's a, a responsibility in the uh, for the planet. And then we've got to take a responsibility for the people. And that's where yes. I get really excited with the fact of materiality. Um, so what would the, how yeah. would the materiality nurture um, and yes. help a human thrive? And then healthy material. Healthy materials. Yes. Very non-toxic materials. materials. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and non-toxic mm. for humans as well as the planet. Um, so, and then then also that on the, the next level of that is the psychological level of how the joy is bought um, and how space creates joy. And yes. while still offering the fundamentals that we went back and built the bunker for, you know, yeah. still offering protection, yeah. still offering um, security and, yes. um, you know, like all those other elements. But and also, also, you know, you go back to not removing us from everything else, making us at one with everything. And so yes. the, the architect's job um, or the designer's job has just got infinitely more complicated because... Complex. complex. Not complicated. Yes, good complex. Good, <laughs> good correction. A hundred percent. It's very simple, but very complex. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's that old thing. Yes. It's it's um it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, exactly. <laughs> but who wants easy? <laughs> yeah. Easy is fast food. That's easy. Yeah. yeah. Um. I think that that whole thing of of looking at it, and I know that you have a, a process that you uh you use, but also that you're further developing, which is your yes. DNA, your DNA process. Yeah. And I, yes, the design DNA. Yeah, yeah I, I think that there's, um, you know, and, and talking to people like, you know, Sam Gosling um, and guys like that, the, you know, Sam's and Christopher a, the, Travis. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, just there's, there's a, a, a multitude of people that I go, these are the ones that are pushing for methodology around where we're headed so that so that yes. everybody can be on the same bandwagon there'll still be genius that happens but they're trying to they're working hard to capture um where that level needs to sit and how it needs to sit and yeah. i think that that is um 
that, that they're working hard to bring more to everyone. And and I yeah. think what what the important thing is for me is that, and especially like the last two years, I've realized that everything we do is about connection. It's mm-hmm. connection to place. It's connection to nature. It's connection to people. You know, so it all hinges around us wanting to be connected, wanting to be part of a community, wanting to be immersed in nature, wanting to be connected with ourselves, you know? So for me, like, that whole thing is it's all summarized in connection because, and and funny enough, you know, um, we did a a project, a ceramics installation project when Cape Town was designed world capital in 2014. And it was an amazing project where we created design awareness um, with over 10,000 people that actively took part in this project. And it was Connections That Unite. That was kind of the subtitle of it. It was Ukusela Ekapa, which translates loosely to bring Cape Town in because we were making ceramic vessels, Uh which you could use for soup or for water. (laughs) And... um, and, it, and that already started in 2014, you know, connections that unite. And it is these connections to the community, to place, to nature, to ourselves. It kind of is as simple as that. Yeah. Complex. Attacking it. Or, or I shouldn't say attacking. Without embracing. Attacking is the wrong word. Embracing it. Um, we'll never get there. We'll no. never get there. And, and this conscious level of doing it. So I've got a question for you on that. And I often ask this question, which is, um, you've listened to a few podcasts of mine, which is if you had one project, I don't want it to be one last project. I just want it to be, if you were to roll back. No, no. No, no, no. I'm going to ask you just 20 years. Go back 20 years. And if that last, like, three (laughs) minutes of conversation we just had about connection had washed over you, because timing's everything. If it had washed over you, say, 20 years ago, what would be different, do you think, now and where you would be at, but also your clients would have been at or would be at in their lives and who that you've discovered on, do that part first, and then we'll go, who have you discovered on the journey that has deepened that understanding of it? So start with, go back 15 or 20 years and go, if this connection that unite had washed through yes. your whole consciousness and you had a chance to live those ne- those 20 years again from that point, um, what would you do? What would you um, do differently? Yeah, so I think I would probably have kind of been more open to people, you know, because I think for me, the connection to nature has been there ever since I can remember. And having worked in Namibia straight out of university, it just cemented that. So like connection to nature has never been not there. It's always been like an instinctual, it's part of my DNA. But I think kind of connection with people and to people and to the community, I never really like fully understood like how important that was. So I think, um, you know, I would probably just be a lot more open to really receiving. And I think there's also like kind of a 
I wouldn't want to say arrogance, but you know, when you kind of just finished studying and whatever, you think you know it all, you know, and it kind of does take like maybe 20 years <laughs> to realize that you don't, <laughs> you know, so I don't really know. I think I, I don't really know whether it would have had an impact 20 years ago, you know, like I don't even know whether I would like have gone like, oh, that's brilliant. I would have probably just gone like, really? Um, so I think kind of it does take a level of maturity, a, a level of experience. Um, because you kind of like some of the things you just don't get when you immature and and you don't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And and it's like you it's like asking for help. Unless you ask for help, whoever's offering it to you, you're not really kind of accepting it, you know, until it kind of is embodied in who you are, how you live. So, um, I mean, like, I think the journey that I've had and, like, every single puzzle piece has just fallen into place for me, you know? Yes. So, like, kind of because I started off working in Namibia, being so connected to nature. Then I did a master's in conservation of the built environment, which really, for the first time, I understood place and space and history and people and people creating places, you know? So like really understanding that sense of community. And now I'm maturing to really understanding how the psychology of spaces really affect people on a primal level, which like I was just never ever aware of. I mean, like I was always aware of good design, don't get yes. me wrong, yeah. but I was never yes. aware yeah. of how how much bad design can really have a negative impact on people's lives. So that to me was the big aha. Because I've always strived to be good design, I've never really kind of given much thought to bad design. And now I've just realized what a shocker bad design is to the health of people's lives. So I, I think that's I, kind of I the think thing. that's a, a wonderful takeaway of COVID. Yes. is that many people have realised and um, it's created a, <laughs> a, 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 yeah, a global it's... building boom um, in, in the first world. It's only yeah. in the first world. I hate to think, you know, the poor buggers in the third world, but in the first world it's created a global building boom. In saying that, yeah. we've got I mean, all this I mean, it's not activity. so much a building boom here. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it just globally, there's things have moved yeah. and shifted. And, and to a large degree, um, it will mean that there will be a lot of rubbish made. There'll yeah. be a lot of stuff that will be poorly done because people are, um, I want to say panicked and panicked isn't the right word. People are just consciously trying to change things so definitely yeah. um, without necessarily having the right guidance to get yeah. the best out of it. You know, the money gets spent any which way. Yeah. The money goes. That's 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 a given. That's whether you always say good and bad design cost the same. Yeah. You know, I'm not talking about finishes and fittings, but like no. the walls, the roofs, the foundations. Whether it's designed well or badly, it costs the same. So you might yeah. as well just design it well. That, that, that's that's the fundamental, isn't it? Start with the with the end in mind, and the good design is the first point of start, and then 
you yeah. know, the the yeah. ability for that to be harmonious with its environment, um, yes. and so on. You know, healthy. It, yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah. That, I think that the most exciting part of um, the shift for the for the masses, and I don't mean that in a horrible way, but just for most people, <laughs> will be that um, you know that that the psychology. The psychology that the psychology matters it's not just yes. about it feeling like another space it's actually about it being a, a transition space about it nurturing about it nurturing yes. health wise about it you know bringing joy about all those different things that it needs to happen um, to create a better life yeah. and we want the need to support you yes yeah exactly yeah. exactly i think that that's a a wonderful part of where we're going. Um, and I love talking to, you know, people like yourself where there's this consciousness of it and this wanting or this yearning and deliberate um, growth towards it and putting yourself around people yes. who are, have maybe discovered it already. Um, yeah. And, and going further with them. And I think that it, we're in for an exciting, yeah. exciting time. It's a shift. It's a shift in, in how behaviors. A big shift. Yeah. A very big shift. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, out of everything comes something, eh? and um, out of COVID, um, we we will get this shift. And it, I think it will just. I think the shift was already there. I think we're accelerating it. I think yes. that's what we're doing. Um, yeah. Tell me, there was something else that you said, and I just love this, um, which was, you know, older people and dogs, what they struggle with is what we struggle with, <laughs> but on a subconscious level. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it just rang so true that, um, <laughs> that you know, like, that 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 is what it is. Like it's uh, it is, but we we're just more resilient, you know. But we're gonna get there. So why yeah. aren't we yes, why aren't we designing spaces that are supporting us even on a subconscious level? So that our subconscious doesn't have to have that like anxious moment, you know, yes. like going like, oh, okay, and then like our conscious body goes like, Oh no, we can do this, you know. So I, I'm, I'm just saying, like, why aren't we designing houses? And the other aspect of houses are life cycles. You know, we have life cycles. Why does our house not have a life cycle that supports our life cycle? You well, know, that's from so me true. To a couple to a family to scaling down, it should be adaptive, you know, so investigating how that looks and what that does, you know, so that it's not this, because I think also housing with elderly people and all of that is just in a dismal state. I mean, yes, they're wonderful resorts and expensive retirement um, complexes and stuff, but many people actually want to be aging in place. And why is their house not supporting them to do that? You know, like it's like um, it, it, it's like when we talk about paddock to plate, you know, with food. Yes. You know, exactly. it, it's cradle to grave in yeah. um in, in, in a house. <laughs> and yes. the, the best thing ever is is that my wife doesn't listen to my podcast because otherwise she'd hire you and fire me. 
especially because I'm a woman, and we do know that women are really, really good residential designers. <laughs> I think they ask for a little more than is reasonable often. <laughs> suppose we over-deliver. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that one off here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I, I love that concept, though, as well, of that cradle-to-grave type um, yeah. house and, and that it's yeah. adaptive and that yeah. and, it, and it being adaptive. And I wonder if, and we haven't necessarily seen this yet, but I wonder if um, because travel became so easy to everybody um, and now, and you know, to some part that's been taken away, yes. um, but because it did, we ne- we didn't necessarily keep families as tight, and yeah. um, not that I want to necessarily live with any of my own personal family members other than the ones that I've created and my yes. wife. Um, and hopefully they want to live with you. <laughs> yeah, that some days my family, my direct family, want to live with me, but uh, not every day. Um, yes, but. You know, that whole thing of um, that extended family thing, which you see yeah. in a lot of countries and a lot of third world countries where, you know, the grandparents live with the, in the home as well. And, you know, yeah. almost that compound thing. How can you have a compound? Generational yeah. living. And I yeah. think it's becoming more of a need again. And I think it comes back to that connection that people want to feel connected and like the grandparents and the grandkids, you know, and that they don't want to be stuck in some retirement village somewhere where nobody really comes to visit and they want to be part of the community still and they have so much value as members of the community, you know. So I think it's just we're denying ourselves when we're not doing intergenerational. We need to be surrounded by all the life sites that don't kind of connect to that. So I've got... I love this. I, I just absolutely love this. And it's not one last project. It's okay. So if if you had to do a collaborative project um, and it was to create a, a model for a multi-generational, inter, you know, intergenerational living, um, cradle to grave, and it could be, a, a, I think it would be multiple structures, but it, it, let's just take it as a compound. So it's in the country. It's for a family. Yes. Um, we've certainly taught people that they can work in all different disciplines yeah. from um, from one place. How would you yes. approach it? How, how would you approach it? Um, and where would you house the um, life coach, you know, where, where would that outside person be that uh, would re-glue them together every time that uh, the thing <laughs> fell apart? You know, just on that, I've got a client, and um, I don't know whether you watch Billions, the, the TV show Billions, and for anybody who does, it's a lot of fun, but they have Wendy yeah. on Billions, and she's the coach, and she keeps that firm um humming and ticking and she's in there and a friend of mine um a client friend and he um has a small team but high powered and when you think when i say small like it might be less than 15 people and he has 
somebody who is specifically in that job in the job role of coaching and and overseeing the glue that that sticks humans together to make his team truly hum and she would be one of the yeah. highest paid employees he has on his staff and uh, in yeah. his team and um she's a fabulous woman um but really really <laughs> interesting and when will companies you know just like in our lives where people go oh you know therapy's been really useful because i discovered this about myself yeah where would you uh, that was a started out as a bit of a joke when i said it but where would you actually house that person <laughs> that would stop, you know, Nana from killing you or whatever it was, you know, poisoning you or something. Um, <laughs> yes. Or strangling living. the grandchild. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but how, how would it? you approach doing it? How would you, what would be the fundamental building blocks that you would put in place to get started? So in terms of that life coach, you know, I think that especially if one is building it out in the country, nature is that life coach because I think whenever you get too heated or you need that kind of help, I mean, to then go for a walk or go for a surf or go for a ride in the country, you know, like that already just like calms the levels down and all of that. So I think like kind of if you're based on the country, you probably don't need to pay billions. I mean, you're already paying to be kind of surrounded by nature. So I think like, to be able to extract yourself and have nature just to really calm you down and whether you're doing a walking meditation or whatever, whatever, it's all a huge part of that role. I mean, you might still need a bit of <laughs> like coaching, but I think... But nature becomes a nurturer. I think the woodwork thing for me has now become really, really kind of front and centre. And I think for me, kind of doing a design build is kind of like the next thing that I really would love to do so i think kind of really working with like the intergenerational family and really like crafting spaces where the places are for community i mean um i think kind of bedrooms are all oversized bedrooms should really just be for sleeping and <laughs> other recreational activities um and the rest of like the connecting should all be happening <laughs> you know in the living in the kitchen in the like outdoor rooms and that the bedrooms are really I mean unless it's like kids doing homework it can be a little bit but I mean having like a whole lounge suite I just think that the planet can't afford that you know so like really taking as much as you need but as little as possible I think yes. is really really yes. what we need to be working with um so I'm not saying deprive yourself from whatever but really kind of evaluate like, do I need a lounge set in my main bedroom in which I actually only sleep, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, asking those type of questions and, and really just becoming, like, sensible and then looking at, like, quality instead of quantity, you know, looking at durable, long-lasting. So, yes, it might be a little bit expensive, but because the footprint is smaller, it's not bad and the ceilings are higher so you're feeling more spacious you've got this connection to nature um you know so kind of that's where i would be going so and also where people can't really kind of like hide in their bedrooms you know so you're really creating a community 
So yes, you need some downtime and alone time, but that you don't end up having your entire childhood in your bedroom, you know, because, you know, it's so kind of almost self-sufficient because your bedroom is so large and you can kind of do everything and anything. Where I think kind of where spaces almost encourage a sense of community. I think that's important. Isn't that like a beautiful way of looking at it? That um, I think, you know, the, the, the key things that came out of there for me was nature is the nurturer and then being uh, materiality being real um, and, yes. and crafted. So it's actually got art in it, not just um, yes. function. And then yes. creating space for community um, almost forcing it in some ways. I, I, I can't remember whose building yes. it was. It might no, have been encouraging it. It's yes. just say encouraging it, Rather not forcing, forcing it, it. Encouraging yeah. it. Well, you know, like I, I can't remember whose building it was, but it was one. I, I think it might have been something Steve Jobs had a hand in. Um, but he, whoever it was, they they had a building built, and they put bathrooms on two levels of you know maybe a four story building. And they made the trek to the bathroom this long trek so yes. that it created community. And because yes. they, they could have put a bathroom on every floor or bathroom. Totally. But what yeah. it did is it created. Intentional design. Yes. Yeah. 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 And encouraging it. So, you know, either you, it, it, it creates that journey for people and transition and, you know, the healthiness yeah. of connection. Um, and then totally. the other. The other key to me that was just massive was, and I mean, we've heard it all before, but it's, um, you know, take as much as you need and as little as possible. Um, yes. Is, yeah, is just, that's, that's how, and everybody's going to have different levels of that, but that is. Yes, for that, sure. That's a beautiful mantra to put in your whole journey of life. Janine. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating chat. I really loved it. Um, and well, I know we'll have more <laughs> um, without a doubt. Yes, no, it's been fabulous, Adrian. Just so many beautiful parts to the thinking. And I think that that thinking that we're talking about is the basis for the future. And it, it, certainly as we go into the psychology. Um, yes. And I love, as you said, you know, like what Christopher Travis has done to work out how to tap into the psychology, what Sam Gosling's doing to um, take that a step further so that it becomes available to so many. Um, yes. And if you're listening to this and you feel inspired, go back and listen to those guys on the podcast as well. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and you'll find a gem. If, this, if the timing is right and this has touched a, a, a nerve with you, then or an itch go back and scratch it um and, and dig in a little yes. and start envisaging your and connect to the previous podcast yeah yeah yes yeah absolutely sure. absolutely <laughs> absolutely fabulous and because it's the middle of the night for you i'm gonna let you go to bed um and hopefully catch up very soon Thanks. <laughs> we will, of course, post all your socials. Absolutely. That'll be great. Thanks a lot, Adrian. Oh, look, my absolute pleasure, Janine. Absolute pleasure. We will post all your socials, how to get hold of you, all those things. Um, and when you do look up 
Janine, see if you can find some stuff on her design DNA. It's uh, it's a beautiful journey. We didn't even touch on it really, um, but it is it is a beautiful method to reach to connect you. Um, Janine's a beautiful person, and her energy and her commitment to better design. Um, but it's it's not an unconscious commitment. It's a, a totally it's a a journey she is passionately walking down the road with. Um, the more people that can embrace where her journey goes, the better people's lives will become. So thank you. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Adrian. <laughs> Cheers, hon. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, let's say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, well, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.